Bodega, 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 alpha and omega. <coughs> Siamese sailors sell celery sandwiches. Sawing about a serving platter. Hey, Jamie. Yes. Uh, did uh, did you want to try reading that line on the script there? Oh, yeah, let's see. Uh, you could say big when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, that one? Yes. Yeah, no, I'm just not warmed up yet. Shouldn't be long. Detector test. Bundle your home and auto with Progressive today. The marmot mangled my mushu pork pancake. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me, my political polling company, um, or if you have any ideas or suggestions for Deadline DC, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon. Our guest in the first half hour today is Paul Lisnick, who is a political and legal analyst for WGNT. In Chicago. In the second half hour, our guest is Janae Osterheld, who is a columnist for the Boston Globe. Uh, Now, as I mentioned, the Senate will also conduct a second impeachment trial for Donald Trump. I've been speaking to the Republican leader about the timing and duration of the trial. But make no mistake, a trial will be held in the United States Senate, and there will be a vote on whether to convict the president. I have spoken to Speaker Pelosi, who informed me that the articles will be delivered to the Senate on Monday. Now, I've heard some of my Republican colleagues argue that this trial would be unconstitutional because Donald Trump is no longer in office an argument that has been roundly repudiated, debunked by hundreds of constitutional scholars, left, right, and center, and defies basic common sense. It makes no sense whatsoever that a president or any official could commit a heinous crime against our country and then be permitted to resign so as to avoid accountability and a vote to disbar them from future office. Makes no sense. Regardless, The purveyors of this unusual argument are trying to delay the inevitable. The fact is the House will deliver the article of impeachment to the Senate. The Senate will conduct a trial of the impeachment of Donald Trump. It will be a full trial. It will be a fair trial. But make no mistake, there will be a trial, and when that trial ends, senators will have to decide if they believe Donald John John Trump incited the insurrection against the United States. 
Okay, our guest in this, that was uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York talking about the upcoming uh, impeachment tile of uh, former President Trump. Our guest in this half hour is Paul Lisnick, who has been, the, has been a political and legal analyst for WGN-TV in Chicago since 2008. He is also the host of the Political Report Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Central Time, in which he interviews the leading political figures in the city of Chicago, the state of Illinois, and the United States. Paul has appeared in a number of TV uh, news networks, uh, including CNN. He is also the author of 13 books, including his new book, Assumed Treason, which we'll talk about later in the half hour. Paul, welcome back to Deadline DC. Brad, good to be with you. It's our first interview in the new year, so happy new year. Great. Happy New Year to you, Paul. And I should also mention, uh, Paul has a uh, podcast on WGN radio called Behind the Curtain, uh, which I've uh, been uh, privileged to be on a few times. So uh, I'm returning the favor by interviewing Paul today. And you will be back. Let's uh, let's start with the uh, clip we played from uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Uh, there is some some people have raised questions about the constitutionality of uh, impeaching a president who isn't president anymore. Uh, wh- what's your opinion on that issue? So and let me for this hat. It's not a political hat. I, I teach constitutional law, so that's one of my areas of of, of specialty. That's so why you're here, Paul. Yeah, well, that's what I'm going to comment from that perspective. The answer is that the Constitution is silent as to whether you can uh, try a former president for impeachment. However, this trial began when Trump was still in office. So one argument response is to say it began when he was president. It just won't end when he's president. Number two is to say, look, if the Constitution simply said the sole remedy of a trial in the Senate is removal from office, One could argue, well, he's already removed from office. What's the point? But there's a second provision, which goes on to say that the Senate has the power to determine whether Trump or anybody in that situation can be banned from running for public office again lifetime. Well, that, the only way you can get a ruling on that would be to have a trial continue, even though he's not president. And then finally, there's the aspect to which can he lose his pension and his Secret Service and his travel budget and all that kind of stuff that comes along with being an ex-president, they can remove that as well. But first you need a conviction by two-thirds, then you need a majority from the other two pieces. The reason Republicans are saying it's unconstitutional is there, well, is because they think it has to be a president. Two points on that. Number one, the only uh, history there is, the only case we can look back at is a guy named William Bell. Well, there's several, but judges and things. But William Belknap was the, was the Secretary of War back in the 1860s. And he was about to be impeached. He heard about it because he was taking bribes. And he ran over to the White House and gave his resignation to President Grant and said, you can't fire me. I'm quitting. And um, Grant accepted the resignation. It didn't stop Congress. Congress proceeded to impeach him unanimously. He was not convicted in the Senate. They had a majority, but not a two-thirds number. But it really didn't matter because the point is the proceedings could continue. And that should be the only precedent that exists that would prevail here. Okay, uh, now uh, I believe the House is sending over the articles of impeachment to the Senate today, and maybe they've already done so, as far as I know. Uh, One thing I just learned is that Chief Justice John Roberts will not 
uh, preside over the impeachment trial. Uh, Senator Pat Leahy, a Democrat, the other Democrat from Senator from Vermont, uh, who doesn't wear mittens, I guess, uh, is going to preside over the trial. Uh, Why is that? Uh, Well, first of all, by the way, the articles have not been presented. It will be uh, on this evening. It's going to happen at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, The walk beginning at 6.55 p.m. Eastern time. So I'm I'm sure that the cables will be covering it. I know WGN is going to cover it live. So it is this evening. So that was the other point of kind of question is to say, well, the Constitution says that the chief justice of the Supreme Court must preside over the impeachment trial of the U.S. president. But he's not the U.S. president. And so on that piece of this question... The answer appears to be it doesn't have to be the chief justice because it is not a sitting president. So who will it be? The next option in line was Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, My understanding is she preferred not to do it. She's not a sitting senator anymore. She is the president of the Senate. So clearly you would see why she would take that role. But she probably can't make the commitment um, to be in the Senate every day for the period of the trial, being vice president, other things on her plate. So the reason it is going to Senator Pat Leahy is because he was just days ago voted in as president pro tem of the Senate. So he's kind of next in charge, next in control, and um, and he will preside. Had we, by the way, still had a Republican-controlled Senate, if, if McConnell were, were running things, then this would have been Chuck Grassley. He was the president pro tem uh, only until the other day. So that's why it'll be Pat Leahy, president pro tem. He was next in line after Kamala Harris. Okay, Uh, let's continue with uh, the impeachment uh, conversation a little bit before we go to break. Uh, One of the things, you know, that's taking off your constitutional law hat and putting on your political analyst hat. Uh, Is it possible? it, It seems to me that the political problem here for Joe Biden is he's been talking about unity. Uh, he's been trying to focus the nation on his agenda. Now, is that all going to go in the dumper when uh, the impeachment trial starts in the Senate, I believe, on February 8th? Well, um, hopefully not. And here's the way they're wrestling with that. The impeachment trial with the articles going over tonight, the trial, according to Senate rules, should start tomorrow. So that's what the rules say. But a deal was struck between McConnell and Schumer and probably with the blessing of Biden. Well, we know it's the blessing of Biden because he said last week he wouldn't be bothered if things were pushed off until February. So they have agreed that they are going to allow some there'll be some briefs that have to get filed and and uh, Trump has to be subpoenaed. A variety of things will happen. And then you're right, Brad, the trial will start on February 8th. Perhaps the arguments actually begin on February 9th or or evidence begins on February 9th in earnest. So President Biden would say with regard to his calls for unity, but here we are doing, you know, having all of this go on. And I think the bottom line is that Biden would say, you know, when I'm calling for unity, I'm talking about the fact that as we do COVID relief, as we take these projects on, I'm concerned about red states and blue states, people who voted for me, people who didn't vote for me. It doesn't mean that everything that comes out of the White House is going to be a policy that Republicans will support or that everyone's going to support. That's not going to happen. So with regard to the impeachment, Biden, who served in the the Senate for 40 years, understand the Senate has a role to do. And Mitt Romney said over the weekend on Sunday, if you're not holding an impeachment trial for incitement to insurrection, what are you going to impeach for? If not this, then what? Okay, we're going to go to break now. Uh, We're going to be away from our radio audience, but we're continuing with our TV audience. Uh, Our guest is Paul Lesnick from WGN TV and Radio. Uh, Welcome back to our radio audience. Uh, By the way, if you're listening to the show and you want to watch it, uh, there are all sorts of options. You can watch us on Periscope TV at 
uh, www.periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can watch us Facebook Live, uh, which is tinyurl.com uh, front slash BB Facebook Live. And now you can also watch us on YouTube at tinyurl.com front slash Brad on YouTube. Our guest in this half hour is Paul Lisnick, who is a political and legal analyst uh, for WGN-TV uh, and radio in Chicago. Uh, Paul, uh, let me ask you about uh, Joe Biden's nominee to be Attorney General, uh, Merrick Garland. He has sort of an interesting uh, background for the new Attorney General, isn't it? He goes back a few years. Well, he goes back a few years. He goes back to my hometown. I actually know his sister and uh, the Garland family, uh, well known in, the, in this Skokie area where I grew up. Uh, he went to Niles West High School. I went to Niles North. He is older than me. But uh, but yeah, so so I, I, I know his background well. And here's the bottom line. You know, at the time that, that people were looking at what pick President Biden should make, they wanted somebody of color. There were arguments for Doug Jones uh, to do it because of his work in the civil rights area. Um, Sally Yates, who was fired as acting attorney general. There were several really viable candidates that could have been could have been placed. And somewhat I was surprised in the end that he, you know, he goes for the, you know, the older white guy uh, to put in that role. But, you know, I think the bottom line is that what Garland, Garland understands the political process very well. But talk about somebody who's level headed and and even handed in what he's going to do. It's one of the reasons President Obama picked him for the Supreme Court. He's somebody that everybody should be OK with. So I think he's going to sail through the Senate with a confirmation. But because on his plate, He's going to have to make the decisions as to whether President Trump and Giuliani and all the rest of these characters get prosecuted on a federal basis for incite, uh, you know, inciting insurrection. That's going to be on his plate, and it's going to be hard to call him any kind of political hack when those decisions get made. And by the way, people might be saying, well, you can't go after Trump because I thought he was president. You can't go after a president. It seems to be, Brad, it's another whole conversation, but President Trump did not pardon himself. And so he is subject to federal charges being placed against him now that he is out of office. I have a secret theory. My theory is the president actually did issue himself a pardon. It's not public. He hasn't talked about it. And the only way we will ever find out about it is if he's charged with a federal crime, he will then pull out the fact that he was issued by himself a federal pardon. And that will have to go through the legal process. I don't know for a fact that he did that, but but. If I were a betting man in Vegas, I would put money on the fact that there is a pardon for him and potentially his kids that weren't made public. Yeah. And finally, uh, Merrick Garland, uh, Garland will actually have a confirmation hearing, unlike when he was uh, nominated uh, for the Supreme Court by Barack Obama. Uh, Mitch McConnell uh, stalled uh, having his confirmation hearing for uh, the Supreme Court in conveniently uh, until uh uh, after uh, Barack Obama was out of office. So uh, Mitch Merrick Garland's finally going to get his uh, his uh, confirmation hearing at long last. Oh, he will, and he'll sail through. And, you know, look, the fact that Garland wasn't giving a hearing with 11 months left in the term, but, you know, Justice Barrett gets a hearing with about seven minutes left uh, in President Trump's term, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but the bottom line is that will go down in history as Mitch McConnell's greatest accomplishment. Uh, for Republicans, for people of conservative values, that was probably the most uh, uh, powerful thing that he could. It was a brilliant and masterful piece of politics that he pulled off. Lots of Democrats not happy with it. Republicans thrilled.
Yeah, he saved the Supreme Court for Donald Trump yeah, and, a- and conservative Republicans in general. Well, and, let and me, by, uh, I know we'll talk about it real quickly. I know we'll talk about this in the future, but expect now the Supreme Court not to defend civil rights or gay rights or things like that. Expect religious rights to get the favorable ruling in various cases like cakes and flowers for gay couples. When those things go up, expect religious rights to be the winning argument there. Yeah. Uh, let's say that Donald Trump did issue himself a pardon. Uh, where is it? I mean, did he stick it in his back pocket when he walked out of the White House? Might have. Doesn't really matter. He put it in his briefcase and took it home. It really yeah. doesn't matter. Um, the bottom line is, can he produce it? And I, I just think, look, Trump is Trump is too strategic, too smart, too self-centered to have just, I know he was advised by Pat Cipollone and others, don't do it, because if you issue yourself a pardon, then you're guaranteeing yourself federal charges. So the best way to avoid it is to not issue it. I just think Trump would have had it both ways. So the way to do it was not to say that he did it, but actually secretly he did it. You know, there's no rules about how a pre- he could have written a, a, a pardon on a cocktail napkin. I'm not kidding. He could have written it on a cocktail napkin with simple language. I hereby pardon myself, Donald Trump, for anything that happens uh, and they charge me with, and it would be valid. Now, well, whether it would be valid for himself is another whole legal question that has to be litigated. But if he secretly issued pardons for his kids and that never came out, those would be valid. Now, that doesn't protect him uh, from uh, state and local prosecution. I believe the New York attorney general and the district attorney uh, uh, in New York uh, for Manhattan, uh, Cyrus Vance Jr., are both investigating him. So uh, he would still have to fight those charges. They are, but a lot of those are civil cases. And so, you know, a lot of those, it's fines. It's not necessarily jail time. And and while he doesn't want to deal with that, you know, I think if he's got to write a check, he'll deal with it. So the real question is whether criminal charges will come against him, his corporation from New York and or Georgia for everything that went on there. That's a possibility too, and or some level of non-federal charges issued by D.C. So he's facing a lot of stuff and none of this has anything to do with the women who are suing him and all those other things. And that's going to fill the pages of the gossip columns going forward. I think that Donald Trump's going to spend a lot of his time defending a lot of lawsuits in the years to come. Uh, let me ask you one last question. Uh, on the first day of his presidency, uh, Joe Biden issued 17 executive orders, uh, many of them reversing executive orders that Donald Trump had issued while he was president. Uh, and uh, are we in danger? And I mean, the, the number of executive orders for good Donald Trump issued a lot of them. Joe Biden's in the process of issuing more uh, because they have a hard time getting things through Congress. Are we moving to an era where basically presidents are, are uh, uh, governing by executive order? And if that and constitutionally, is that a good thing? Well, um, we might be moving to that era. What depends there is whether or not the uh, Senate decides to get rid of the filibuster rules. That's a whole, another whole discussion. But if they keep the filibuster, then we probably are entering into the world where we govern by executive orders because the Senate can't accomplish anything. If they get rid of the filibuster rule, which would be good for Democrats now, and it probably wouldn't pass right now because people like Joe Manchin said he won't support it. Again, another conversation. But listen, one day Republicans will control again and Democrats will be unhappy when all it takes is a majority to get things through. President Trump only issued one executive order on his first day in office. Over the course of his term, he had a field day with him. And you're right, President Biden is having a field day turning everything around. That's the risk of an executive action, which is to say, you know, as quickly as you can create policies, boom, DACA gone, no, DACA back, boom, Muslims out, no, Muslims back. And that's what's going to happen. 
every single day. And in fact, I can tell you, somebody on Facebook put a, uh, going after Biden put a comment there saying, you see, he just reversed Trump's executive order that lowers the price of insulin. And look what he's doing to, to, to medical situation. Well, that's not true. What Biden did was he put a hold on everything Trump did through executive order that has not yet taken effect. And requires a review of that for the next 60 days. It is true that that insulin uh, executive order is one of them, but we'll see what uh, Biden ends up doing about it. But the bottom line is it's not a good way to govern. No, it isn't. The other part is legislation. But Paul, I want to thank you for joining us today in Deadline DC again today. Uh, I hope you can join us again soon. I always love having you on the show uh, because uh, you can deal with the constitutional, legal, and political and policy issues that will come up increasingly in the early stages of the uh, Biden presidency. So thank you very much. held from the Boston Globe. But before we get to Janae, uh, let me uh, read my thought of the day. The lights in America are bright again today after the nation has been shrouded in darkness for four years. The questions facing Joe Biden's presidency are how long his fragile honeymoon lasts and whether or not he can unify a deeply divided nation. It was a speech many Americans expected to hear from Joe Biden and wanted to hear from him. He emphasized unity over partisanship and division. The 46th president clearly tried to lower the temperature in Washington in the hope that cooler heads would prevail as he begins to advance his agenda and reverse the damage that Donald Trump has done to the nation. If the new president's inaugural address was successful, he will get a brief honeymoon honeymoon to heal the grieving nation and close the festering wounds inflicted by Donald Trump's presidency. Whether the honeymoon lasts months, weeks, or days is anybody's guess. You can read the rest of this column and my take on presidential politics and policy in The Hill every Tuesday. You can find my column at muckrack.com front slash dash Bannon. Our guest in this half hour today is Janae Osterheld. Uh, She is a columnist for the Boston Globe who covers identity and social justice through the ends of culture and the arts. These days, she often writes about the coronavirus pandemic and America's original pandemic, racism. She joined the Globe as a culture writer in 2018. She's a graduate of Norfolk State University and was a 2017 Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, where her studies focused on the intersection of art and justice. You can follow her on Twitter at Sincerely Janae, and that's Sincerely, J-E-N-E-E. Janae, welcome back to Deadline DC. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's start with, uh, it was pretty clear that uh, Joe Biden was uh, pushing for unity. Uh, Can you push for unity or do you have to pull for unity? I don't know. But anyway, uh, unity uh, was the big theme of Joe Biden's inaugural address. 
And uh, his early uh, job ratings uh, in the polls were pretty positive. Uh, ABC News did a poll on the third and fourth days of his presidency. Uh, they asked him uh, in particular about the executive orders he uh, uh executed uh, to bring back the uh, DACA program uh, to uh, ban further construction on the uh, Mexican border wall uh, and also uh, a couple others. Oh, also, he reversed the uh, Muslim ban. Now, I thought it was interesting. The polling showed that a clear majority of Americans uh, favored all three of those executive orders, which I thought was good news. Uh, the bad news was, uh, while just about every Democrat, most independents uh, favored all three of those executive orders, uh, at least three quarters of the Republicans uh, were opposed to each and every one of them. Uh, and it seems to me race and immigration is the fault line uh, in American politics, as it's been for a while. And so my question to you, uh, given that hostility uh, that Republicans exhibited uh, towards these executive orders, uh, how difficult is or even possible for Joe Biden to unify this country? So. A few things. I don't think any one person and any one president can unify the country. Um, I think that the 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 very function of supremacy that this country was built on, until we dismantle the entire system, division is going to exist. And you can't, those Republicans that are xenophobic and racist, Joe Biden's not necessarily going to change their minds. Like, I don't believe that he's going to suddenly soften their hearts and we are the world them. Um, I think the path forward is us um, with our little votes, with our everyday votes, not just presidential elections, but neighborhood votes and city votes and state votes, getting people in place that want to fight for collective liberation and want to fight forward for unity into office. That's how we're going to get forward. Um, obviously, we have to work with the Republicans who believe these obnoxious things because they're currently in office until they are in office no longer. But I am not disillusioned into thinking Biden can, like, you know, care bear stare them. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, the executive orders are signed. And, you know, my hope is that we just push forward from there. Um, because we're gonna continually be disgusted at the large number of people who are unhappy with uh, black people and people of color and people from other countries, particularly brown and black countries, having any type of freedoms. Okay, I guess I can't say on the air what uh, the term that Donald Trump used to describe those uh, countries, um, because I well, get- the We, we are that country now though. We, we, you could use that term yeah. to, to describe. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, I always thought that was the one thing that, you know, many conservative Republicans uh, missed. I remember one of the most things that always sticks in my mind is a couple years ago, uh, the Department of the Census 
uh, the department, the, the Census Bureau and the Department of Commerce issued a report uh, that said the United States would be uh, uh, majority non-white by 2044. That's only 23 years from now. Here's the thing. Even though the country more and more we're seeing cities and states that are, are majority non-white people, you see a place like Ferguson where, you know, I'm so thankful Cori Bush is in office and making policy change, but it's like a place like Ferguson for so long was majority black yet ruled, ruled by majority white. So my concern is like, yes, uh, we can get more brown and black people in this country. This country can, can grow to, to be browner and browner and browner, but if the power structures still serve supremacy, if the power structures still serve hierarchy and capitalism, then how do we ever gain liberation and unity? And it's like, for all Joe Biden's talk about unity, we can't have that without accountability and justice. So it's just like, there's a lot of, sorry, my dog is having a moment. <laughs> um, there's a lot of, um, work to be done and just like gut checking to be done about what's possible and what's not. And for me, it's about focusing on policy that actually helps, um, that helps the people and, and not focusing so much on, um, well, you know, three fourths of Republicans feel like this or 74 million, uh, people support Trump. Um, this is what this, like we, we need to reframe how we talk about citizenship. Like citizenship has always meant whiteness in this country, always. And um, I think the more we start, it's, it's one of the good parts of having Kamala Harris in office is to me, her identity, having two parents that are immigrants, um, having a parent that's Afro-Caribbean, having a parent that's South Asian, um, being a black woman, all of these things are how we need to talk about citizenship. She's, this is what America looks like. It looks like her. And I'm not saying all her policy, you know, like her history is great or anything like that, but just identity. That's what citizen to me, American citizenship looks like that. And as we start to talk about ourselves as Americans and who we are in the global landscape, we need to, to disengage the idea that American citizenship means whiteness and whiteness only. And uh, what can Joe Biden do to move to move the country forward in that regard? You know, I think Joe Biden has to. Um, he first of all, I mean, we know he's a he's a Democrat, but he's a conservative Democrat, and it's like you know, people around him. He's got a diverse cabinet. He's got Kamala. He's got you know, we have AOC and Ayanna Presley and Cory Bush. He has to make sure he's opening his ears to listen to them and taking them seriously. And I think he has to learn to accept that America has failed. He has this obsession with saying, you know, America has never failed when we came, when we come together, America doesn't lose. This is not who we are. Those are all lies. Like we have to get very honest about who we are and what we saw at the Capitol is who America, you know, that's part of who we are. Like the past four years is part of who we are. Like, I think until he starts, um, you know, accepting that reality and accepting that sometimes we do fail and that we don't win everything, 
you know, that's where we have to, okay. he has to get honest and he has to understand there can't be unity. Honesty. Okay, we're going to go to break now, Janae, but we get back uh, with more Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We will continue our discussion with Boston Globe columnist Janae Osterheld. Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. My guest in this half hour is Janae Osterheld, who is a columnist for the Boston Globe. And by the way, for our radio listeners, if you'd like to watch the show uh, as well as listen to it, uh, you can watch the show by going to periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can watch us on Facebook Live at tinyurl.com. Uh, front slash BB Facebook Live. And now you can also watch us on YouTube at tinyurl.com front slash Brad on YouTube. Uh, Janae, let's talk about, uh, much to my surprise, because uh, poetry uh, isn't exactly a hot topic in modern American society. Uh, the uh, We had a poet read, uh, in a, her, uh, we had her uh, read a poem at Joe, inaugural, uh, Joe Biden's inaugural address, and it created uh, quite an impact. Uh, why did the poets have such an impact in this day and age on the Biden inaugural? I mean, artists have always been, you know, and JFK said this when he was president, you know, artists have always been our truth tellers. They are, they have always been the people who um, speak to the truth of who we are. And um, I think not since Maya Angelou's on the pulse of the morning at the, uh, you know, for the Clinton presidency, have we seen an inaugural poem so powerful. Amanda Gorman is the, the nation's first national youth poet laureate. She's not the only one, but she was the first one. And when she came out there and said, you know, we the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. For me, that was just as much about her as it was about any black person whose bloodlines still ripple in the pipeline wave of the transatlantic slave trade. It was just as much about us as it was about Kamala, who dreamed of being president and now finds herself serving alongside one. Um, the hill we climb is such a testimony to how close we are to liberation if we can just embody it, if we can just actually put it in policy, put it in action. Um, I think, you know, I think about what she said, um, there, what was the part? Uh, we will rebuild, reconcile, and recover every known nook of our nation and every corner called our country. Our people, diverse and beautiful, will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid. Um, this is like, I think it speaks to how we should value democracy. Like, how are we going to be the light? How are we going to make these things happen? You know, Joe Biden referenced uh, Langston Hughes' Harlem poem when he talked about, um, you know, dreams being no deferred no longer in making justice a reality. 
like that came straight out of Langston Hughes, um, you know, what happens to a dream deferred, you know, does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore? Like there was a lot of poetry happening on inauguration day. And I think it makes perfect sense why people were so moved. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, besides uh, Amanda God, uh, Gorman, uh, we had quite a bit of uh, art and celebrity influence at the inauguration. Uh, Jennifer Lopez uh, made a, a big splash, uh, partly in Spanish and sp partly in English. Uh, Lady Gaga uh also was a prominent uh presence uh what does the presence of, of women like that uh mean in american politics i mean i think there i mean they there's different relationships you know lady gaga worked with biden on on things in the past so that it made sense and also lady lady gaga is such a figure and j-lo actually in the lgbtq plus communities and J-Lo is a figure in many communities, like the LGBTQ plus community, um, the Latinx community, the black community, like she speaks to so many communities. Um, I think having them there was showing how it was, I think by, it was very intentional. Um, Biden and Kamala have been very intentional in this run up to uh, the election and now the presidency and how they want to be represented and in, in um, the messaging that is sent. Um, my only pause was, the, you know, this land is your land, this land is my land. Like, I think it would have been nice to have some native representation um, and acknowledgement of the land we're actually on. But beyond that, it, it was a very powerful show of inclusion. And I think people felt um, a brief sigh of relief for the first time in a long time, even though we are far done from fighting. Okay. Uh, let me uh, ask you to talk more about something you brought up in the first segment. Uh, we have um, uh, right now the Democratic majority in the U.S. House of Representatives is very slim. I think there are only 10 or 11 uh, the, uh, vote majority in the Democratic caucus over the Republican caucus. Uh, we have a greatly, uh, well, a significantly expanded uh, group of progressives uh, in the House, Democrats uh, in the House of Representatives. Uh, the uh, squad, which is now, I believe, six and uh, in over um, instead of the four from the last session, uh, you know, led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, but also from uh, Boston, we have uh, we have Alana Presley. Uh, we also have a new member who you mentioned from St. Louis, Corey Bush. Uh, now, given the fact that uh, there are enough of them to have uh, hold the balance of power uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans in the House of Representatives. Uh, how successful do you think they will use their newfound power to address uh, progressive issues and racial issues? I mean, if you th I don't think AOC leads them, but I think AOC gets the most press time for different yeah. reasons. Um, and I think there's more than four and there's more than six. I think there's a lot more members of the squad than people understand. It's just the media doesn't give Johanna, um, like, you know, Johanna Hayes or, I mean, there's all these different people who are just as progressive, um, and powerful. And I think the more we start to give those people the mic and give them media space and give them, um, time to spread their message, we'll see power shift. 
I think, you know, Corey Bush is already starting to introduce um, ideas on how we could talk about domestic violence differently. And AOC has always been vocal about how we need to be more progressive, and I don't expect that to change. Um, Ayanna Presley is just brilliant and amazing, and I think all of these powerful progressive women are going to keep pushing us forward so long as we keep voting them forward and keep putting them in positions to be supported. Okay. Uh, let me ask you something else you uh, talked about in the first segment. Uh, you said we need to uh, make changes in the, in the system. Uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, it's not enough to just say, oh, we want unity or it's unity now and, or, you know, justice will be deferred no longer. Show us. How is justice going to be deferred no longer? Like, what are the new policies? It, we can't just have reform. Some of these things have to be restructured, period, like built from scratch on how we look at things. Even how um, the FBI is handling the Capitol riots and like, oh, well, we might not charge some of these people they charged all of the people who were sitting on the lawn in Kentucky peacefully, like arrested all those people. And I'm just like, this is already a different, these are reflections of how problematic our system is and how our system treats white supremacy and threats of white violence. Like the whole reason police didn't show out ready to like fully protect the Capitol is because they didn't take that riot seriously as a riot like they didn't take trump supporters who had long said they were showing up in washington seriously as a threat but black people can peacefully march and they'll be fully out there with tanks so it's just these are, that's a system that's in place that was built just like i talked about citizenship and how we engage citizenships that's all part of the design of how america functions and we have to start being honest about that and rebuilding it, which is, I think, what Ayanna Presley and Cori Bush, they're all like introducing policies that hopefully will get passed that will start to combat some of these problems we have in America. Yeah, it just struck me, you know, going back to the capital riots, the treatment, uh, you know, thinking about the contrast uh, between uh, the way that uh, the rioters at the Capitol were treated, uh, as opposed to your average, uh, you know, protester at a Black Lives Matter demonstration uh, was very glaring. It was incredibly sad. And it's, it's just, that's what I want Biden to understand. That is who we are. We are a country who equates white supremacists terrorizing our nation to black people just fighting for humanity for, for their humanity for their equity okay. i'm gonna have to interrupt you janae because we're out of time uh thank you very much for joining us today our guest in this half hour was janae Ostenheld, who is a columnist for the boston globe that's all for me today. Uh, thanks to our guests, Paul Lisnick of WGN TV and Radio in Chicago, and Janae Osterheld from the Boston Globe, and my executive producer, Mark Romaldi. This is Brad Bannon. Uh, stay safe and stay sane if you can while the pandemic rages. Can't find a playlist for your unique taste? With two different mobile apps, TD Ameritrade makes sure that doesn't happen when you invest. Check out TD Ameritrade Mobile and Thinkorswim Mobile to find the app that's right for you. Member SIPC.
Progressive presents an interview with your upstairs neighbor. Hey, it's Rick from upstairs. Yeah, I take it seriously. When I play R&B at one in the morning, that's me saying, hey, I'm here for you. And I enjoy repetitive bass lines. I only use expired batteries in my smoke detectors. Nice, right? Yeah, upstairs neighbors help people forget their troubles. Give them something else to focus on. Ooh, want to see how high I can jump? Progressive can't save you from your upstairs neighbor. No, wait, let me try again. But we can save you money when you bundle renters and auto insurance with us. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations.